We've all experienced that feeling. Nowhere to run, ain't got nowhere to go. And we're in the middle of a long series through the summer uh, entitled Born in the USA, and we're talking about the life and times of Daniel. And if you remember, Daniel was uh, kidnapped at age 15, and uh, somehow he navigates the life and times of Babylon, uh, which was a crazy place to live, and he has crazy situations. He's able to navigate that and uh, not conform to that, and he's able not only just to survive that environment, that experience, but he actually thrives in that environment and experience. And so we look to him, and we see how his friends are, and uh, they really at times uh, seem like they're stuck, but they're really not stuck. They're able to move through it, and uh, we're trying to learn from their, their example. Now, today we're going to be talking about uh, a different subject, which might not seem uh, you know, normal to talk about feeling stuck or trapped with. And uh, if you're trying to catch up, uh, you can find those, those previous sermons online, also on YouTube. But for most of us, we're, we're not really thinking about uh, being stuck in this area that we're talking about this morning, this idea of being successful. Uh, most of us don't think, oh, woe is me, things are going well. Woe is me, I've kind of arrived in this area. Woe is me, uh, things are going well. And uh, that can actually be a real sticky place for us. Because when we think we've arrived in a place, when we think we've got it all together, when we think we can totally check that thing off our list, things seem to happen. Uh, ideas and concepts seem to subtly slide in. When we think of we're in control of a segment of life, and sometimes we're in control, uh, we kind of act like this guy. What's it like to be the boss of you? Pretty great. How about a 10% raise? How about 20? How about done? That's the kind of control I like. And that's what they give me at National Car Rental. I can choose any car in the aisle I want without having to ask anyone. Who better to be the boss of you than me? I mean, you. Us. You know, sometimes we kind of get full of ourselves and we think we've arrived, a uh, success, we've got the world by the tail, and uh, that can be just a subtle thing in our lives. It can subtly slide in and create all kinds of new areas of entrapment. Um, for this gentleman from Hertz Car, it gets even worse. You know who likes to be in control? This guy. Check it out. Self-appendectomy. Now. Oh, that's really attached. <laughs> that's why I rent from National, where I get the control to choose any car in the aisle I want, not some car they choose for me, which makes me one smooth operator. <laughs> Still a little tender. Now, you've met those people. They've made up in that obvious... But you've met those people. They think they've arrived, they, they, they are successful, and maybe in some ways they have arrived. And uh, they just project, now that I'm arrived, now that I know it all, I am now in control of my destiny. And what makes it even worse is they think you're in control of your destiny. And the weight of that is, is just huge. But that can happen to any of us. We can get trapped into that. It subtly creeps in. 
And I'm not talking about not having confidence in how you do your job or how you live your life. But when that confidence slides over into arrogance, when that confidence slides over to I've got this all by my own and I'm in charge. And uh, that can happen to any one of us in multitude of areas. It can even happen to us in the realms of spirituality, uh, realms of following Christ. We can get to the place where we think, I've got that. I've got that figured out. I'm all set. I'm in control. I get that. And when that starts to happen, all kinds of things go wrong in our lives. It's interesting, Moses even realized this when the people were going from uh, Egypt and captivity and eventually getting into the promised land, he knew that they could get trapped in this idea of I've got it all together, I'm successful, life is good, life is sweet, and then all of a sudden it could start to affect uh, their actual, their spiritual life, the, the way they interact with God, that they would actually start to, in a sense, because of their success, because of all their wins, it would start to actually edge out God, the one who had brought them there. In Deuteronomy, we read this: Make sure that when you eat, you are make sure that when you eat and are satisfied, build pleasant houses and settle in. See your herds and your flocks flourish and more and more money come in, watch your standard of living go up and up, make sure you do not become so full of yourselves and your things that you forget God. It's interesting, some of us can identify we've been there. We've been a Christ follower. Uh, we, no one has to convince us of this. Some of us in this room, we're still unconvinced, and that's okay. But there are some of us that are convinced, and we found that the good things in life actually create a problem, and we become so full of ourselves that we get distracted, and we start to forget God. We can even be experts at going through all the rhythm of doing church stuff, Christian stuff, giving stuff, but there inside us becomes this arrogance that we've got this figured out, and then where we really see it is we've got this figured out, and there's other people who don't have this figured out, and then we start to control or try to control. Uh, Moses goes on and says this, if you start thinking to yourself, I did all this and all by myself, I'm rich, it's all mine, well, think again, remember that God, and then he goes on, that God brought things together. You see, we can get to a point that we think we actually did pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And this doesn't have to do with just finances. Uh, this can just deal with the way we navigate our life. Uh, we think we've got it under control to a degree, and then all of a sudden we start to become pretty self-satisfied in ourselves. And there might even be, uh, you know, a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of smugness. And we say, I'm rich. I may not be rich financially. That, that ship has sailed a long time ago. I'm where I am, but at least I'm rich spiritually. And all these other people out there that are chasing after the quote-unquote American dream or whatever they're chasing after, they don't get it. I do. Ha, ha, ha. Now, you wouldn't say that out loud, but deep down inside, you kind of have that feeling. You see, satisfaction, succeeding, getting it together can be a wonderful thing, 
but also can become a significant, significant uh, destructive thing in our lives. Uh, Samson, a judge. Uh, Samson, you know, the strong guy, uh, beating up Philistines all the time, playing games. He knew all the rules. His parents did a great job, but he came self-satisfied. He, he, the rules are no longer for him. And then in one moment in the Older Testament, you hear this. Samson awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And we understand that when we say yes to Christ, God joins our life, the Holy Spirit lives in our life, but we, and he does not depart from us like he did in the Older Testament. That's the reason there's a New Testament. That's the reason Jesus came, different grace time now. But we can still be in a similar situation where we don't realize, even though we have God in our life, that all of a sudden he said, you want to do things on your own? You're so successful, you've got it all together. Here, here's the wheel. Drive your car. And all of a sudden, we realize we're off someplace where uh, he's not present in a significant way. He's present with us, but he's not moving in our life the same way because we've hardened our hearts. We've got to be really aware of success. It's interesting, again, Daniel somehow was able to navigate that. But... uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not able to navigate that. Nebuchadnezzar gets caught up with it. And everybody can see it. Everybody can see it except Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes you and I find ourselves in the same place. Everybody can see it except for us. Or maybe it's we don't want to see it. Maybe we don't want to know that we're kind of full of ourselves. We've had some good experiences in our life. Uh, We've uh, had some successes And now we're an expert. And now we look at everybody else as being less than experts. It's almost like uh, the new emperor's clothing. Remember that child story where, uh, you know, he doesn't have any clothes and everyone acts like he is. Everyone can see this is going on, but he can't see it himself. Our favorite guy from Hertz gets into the same situation one more time. As a control enthusiast, I'm all business when I travel. Even when I travel for leisure. So I go national, where I can choose any available upgrade in the aisle without starting any conversations or paying any F-charges. What can I say? Control suits me. See the looks of everybody else. He thinks he's all arrived, but he obviously hasn't. And Nebuchadnezzar finds himself in that place. Read out of the message paraphrase in chapter 4, we read this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home taking it easy in my palace without a care in the world. He'd arrived, he was probably in his early 50s, and Daniel was probably in his late 40s. Remember, he was kidnapped at 15 and had been there now for a number of years. But as I was stretched out on my bed, I had a dream that scared me, a nightmare that shook me. I sent for all the wise men of Babylon so that they could interpret the dream for me. When they were all assembled, the magicians, enchanters, fortune tellers, witches, I told them the dream. None could tell me what it meant. 
So he calls in and he wants Daniel to come there. And Daniel hears the dream, figures out what's going on. God gives him the understanding. And we pick it up at verse 19. At first, Daniel, who had been renamed Belshazzar in Babylon, was upset because he knows what's happening. The thoughts that came swarming to his mind terrified him. Belshazzar, said, Belshazzar, the king, said, stay calm. Don't let this dream, its interpretation, scare you. My master, Belshazzar, said, I wish the dream was about your enemies and its interpretation for your foes. So Nebuchadnezzar has arrived. Things are sweet. Things are good. He's successful, and he was successful. Every campaign he put his hand to, Every campaign he put his mind to, he succeeded. So for 25, 30 years, he had had success after success after success. And so he was taking it easy. He was enjoying it. Then Daniel starts to share him what the dream means. The tree you saw that grew so large and sturdy with its top touching the sky, visible from the four corners of the world, the tree with the luxuriant foliage, abundant fruit, and enough for everyone, the tree under which animals took cover and in which birds built nests, you, O king, are the tree. Oh, I'm sure he loved hearing that part. You have grown great and strong. Your royal majesty reaches sky high, and your sovereign rule stretches to the four corners of the world. I can just see him sitting on his throne going, that is right. But, but the part about the holy angel descending from heaven and proclaiming, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave a stump and its roots in the ground, belted with a strap of iron and bronze in the grassy meadow. Let him be soaked with heaven's dew and take his meals with the grazing animals for seven seasons. This, O king, also refers to you. Seven seasons could be seven years. Seven seasons could be seven growing seasons, making it two and a half years. We're not really sure about that, but seven seasons, it's a, it's a long time. It's just not overnight. It's just not a week. It means that the high God has sentenced my master, the king. You will be driven away from human company and live with the wild animals, you will graze on grass like an ox. You will be soaked in heaven's dew. This will go on for seven seasons, and you will learn that the high God rules over human kingdoms, and that he arranges all kingdom affairs. See, Nebuchadnezzar had gotten to the place where he literally had arrived. No one was as good as him. No one was as powerful as him in that known world. And he had become full of himself. His success actually had corrupted his heart. Earlier on, in other stories, we've talked about him acknowledging God, seeing God, not having it totally clear, but being moving in that path. We don't know if at this time he had made a decision to follow God, and he just had gotten really off, off uh, the path, or that comes just a little bit later. But here this guy is. He's seen great things, yet he's put it together that it's been him who's made his destiny. And some of us today believe that it's we that have made our destiny.
destiny. That doesn't mean hard work isn't a good thing. But even when we work hard, even when we've done all the right things and we're reaping the results of it, which we ought to, to get so caught up with ourselves to think that we've arrived is a problem. And the king is there. And then we read on. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Just 12 months later, he was walking on the balcony of the royal palace and boasted, look at this, Babylon the Great, and I built it all by myself, a royal palace adequate to display my honor and my glory. The words were no sooner out of his mouth than a voice from heaven spoke this verdict on you, King Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is taken from you. You see, the danger when we get caught up with a component of life, success, and we take too much credit for it, too much ownership for it, the danger is that we begin to start edging God out. We edge God out of our lives. The, the, the gift that he's given us, the way he's worked in our life, uh, stops being a celebration pointing to him, and it starts to be a celebration pointing to ourselves. And I dare say, each one of us in this room, even if we don't consider ourselves successful people, do have areas where we've succeeded, where we've done well, where things have, have come together. And when we take too much credit for that, too much ownership for that, that success can become a trap. Uh, sometimes it's, again, as I said earlier, it's in our spiritual life. Maybe the rest of life hasn't gone too well, but we, we are in. We're in tune. We know a lot of stuff spiritually. We can communicate a lot of stuff spiritually, and we've got a little bit of a pride for that. We could go take a look at the Pharisees, the ones that were always on Jesus' back. They knew it all. They knew it all. They were very successful in that. Yet there was a pride. There was a pride that caused them not to see that the actual Messiah, the one they were waiting for, uh, had arrived. You see, it's very natural for us to let the good things of life, the successes of life, distract us and edge God out. Even the ones that we clearly can see his hand and say, God did this for me. In John, we read, the love of the world squeezes out love of the Father. What's the love of the world? Being self-centered, being all about you. The world loves itself. They love to harness everything for itself. There are pockets, thankfully, where people give away. I was so happy to hear that when this uh, volcano erupted in Guatemala, our military transported the most hurt children into the United States to care for them because they could do that. that that's a good thing, giving away, helping. But that's not always the norm. Love of the world, love of self, squeezes out the love of the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. I don't like that last line. As a Christ follower, I don't want to be isolated from him. I want to be close to him. I want to be aware of him. I want to 
know when he's leading me and prompting me to do or not do. I want a relationship. I want closeness. So this edging God out because of our successes is very damaging to our spiritual life. And we're so sophisticated, we're so smart that we can actually take things that are meant to be spiritual things and use them in the same way to make ourselves feel important, to lift ourselves up. And it just isolates ourselves from him. It doesn't bring ourselves closer to him. This is in your notes, came across this quote. Our most miserable moments are when we think the world revolves around us. That is when we are most selfish, disappointed, and upset. Ask yourself, where are you at in your life? Are you feeling disappointed and upset? Is it kind of filling in all the edges of life? Maybe, I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but the possible answer to that is because you desire, I desire, the world to revolve around me. That's why having control or perceived control makes us feel good because I want it to revolve around what I want it to revolve around. Even when I'm giving myself away, I still want control. And those are the times where we're the most disappointed and upset. Especially if you're a Christ follower because you've been wired to be selfless not self-centered. So when you and I, who claim to follow Christ, are being self-centered, it's going to create a tension in our life. It's supposed to. It misaligns with God who lives with us, lives in our life, and it creates a friction. And that friction makes us uncomfortable, makes us upset. It, it makes us a little more snappy, makes us disappointed in life. You see, when you and I are captivated by our success, whatever that may be, it has an impact to us. Proverbs 27, 21 says, fire tests gold and silver. We've talked about that already, that process. A person's reputation can also be tested. And the idea here is that sometimes we latch onto our reputation so much, and it's a good reputation, that we almost hold on to it, and we almost want to keep it going, and we almost create a reputation that isn't reasonable or isn't reality, and, and we hold on to it, or we have a reputation. And that reputation of being able to do this or doing that becomes not an area of, of just uh, being content and being thankful for it. It becomes an area of pride and self-centeredness. And then that becomes a test. Sometimes I wonder why I don't have a certain ability or why my pockets aren't as deep as I would like them to be. And sometimes I realize that because if I had that ability, if I had that larger bank account, maybe I wouldn't do the right thing with that stuff. Maybe it would be all self-centered. Maybe, maybe I'd use that all for me. And then, what's the point? So when we think about our lives, when we think about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the uh, like outrageous guy. He's the Hertz guy of 25, 2,600 years ago. When we think of him, we realize that there's, there's a danger. When we're, when we're in the borderline of edging God out, it starts with this idea of being comfortable and smug. Comfortable and smug. We're, we're comfortable with ourselves. In some way, that's good, but in this area, no, we're just satisfied. 
Uh, there's no more need to grow. We're, we've arrived. We're complete. Uh, we don't need a new thought. We're just kind of redoing what we've done for the last five years. We're comfortable. And along with that is this smugness where we feel pretty good about that. Uh, I've arrived in this issue, and, and they haven't. And because I'm far enough ahead of them, I can just kind of settle in and just be good where I am. I'm a, a B student, and they're a D student at living life, so I don't need to try to be an A student. I can just settle in. We become comfortable, and we actually look at the other student as it, it, with a little bit of contempt. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar was at. Put a couple verses together. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was enjoying a time of peace and prosperity in my kingdom and palace. I was taking it easy without a care in the world. And um, we can find ourselves that place. We can find ourselves that way at any age and stage of life. We're just comfortable. We settle. We're, we're self-satisfied. We feel too good with the place we're at. And it's not to feel guilty and it's not to have a lack of contentment, but we just settle in. And again, we have this little attitude that that's okay because look at other people in my life. Told you about areas that I've struggled with sometimes, uh, and I find somebody else, or I know somebody else, I don't really have to find them, and they're, they're struggling worse than I'm struggling. And in moments when I see them, I go, you know, they're a lot worse than I. I'm pretty good. I'm just going to kind of settle in and be okay with where I'm at. That smugness. And then we raid on. And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was walking the roof. He, again, symbolic, he's on the roof, but there's, I have arrived. I'm in the top place, and he's just looking over the kingdom. You see, for some of us, rooftop experiences are extremely damaging. You wonder why it hasn't all come together for you. Maybe this isn't the only reason, but one of the reasons is because maybe when you get on the rooftop, you'll do, I'll do what Nebuchadnezzar does. Another character from the Older Testament that we're very familiar with, those of us who have been in church for a while, is King David. His problem happened on a rooftop. He's up there. He thinks he's arrived. He thinks the rules no longer apply to him. That's for somebody else. Will you read it? In the springtime, uh, at time where kings go off to war, again, he didn't have to because he had arrived. Sent out Joab with the king's army and the whole Israel. They destroyed the Amalites. They're doing all kinds of great stuff. But David remained in Jerusalem because he didn't have to go out. He had arrived. One evening, he got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From there, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. A lot of us know the rest of the story. He calls for her, sleeps with her. And then to cover up the whole situation, he has her husband, who's off in war, killed. Unbelievable. David, a man after God's own heart. Rooftop. Success. Subtly got into his life, and he thought he was beyond the rules. Happens a lot of times to pastors. Happens a lot to politicians. Happens a lot to school teachers. Happens a lot to all of us is a moment where we think we've arrived and the rules are for everybody else. Happens sometimes in law enforcement. On and on and on and on. You see, 
success, even though we don't think it could be, could be a trap if we don't look at it the right way. And then there's a hardness on our heart. Then even like a message like this or another message, we, we just keep it arm's length. Revelation, we read this. Behold, I stand, this is Jesus speaking. Behold, I stand at the door of the church, of the assembly. Remember, church is assembly of Christ's followers. It's not a building. I stand at the church and continually knock. Knock, 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 knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, it's like there's a party going on inside and they can't even hear Jesus knocking at the door. I will come in and eat with him, restore him, and he with me. I stand at the door. I continually knock. Eat with him has the idea of fellowship, community. You know, it's, it's amazing that for many of us, this, this, this verse is for Christ followers. Sometimes you hear this verse if you've been around, you hear this verse talking to people that, uh, you know, have not said yes to Christ. Christ is knocking on the door of your heart. But this verse in the content is for those that have already said, I follow Christ. How odd to have him outside of the door. Be like, he's outside knocking right now, and we're just kind of doing our own thing in here. And Jesus himself, the Lord, the one who gave his life for us, the one we claim to follow, is knocking out there, and we're just ignoring it. And so there's this hardness, this success. Long in this church in Revelation is this whole idea, they're, they're rich, they got it together. And Jesus says, you don't have it together. The Lord despises pride. You can be sure that the proud will be punished. I read that verse. I'm happy that he doesn't say he despises the proud. He despises the action, the expression. He despises that. And he won't let it go on forever. Someday that catches up with you. Someday those that... Uh, uh, you know, are not being humble, will we'll stumble. And sometimes it might not be apparent. Maybe it was just a part of their life will be closed off. I've met people that uh, are proud and they won't reconcile with somebody else and they get a hard heart and it's possible to reconcile and, and they don't even want to look at it and, and they just close their heart off and they're proud about it and they're just not going to do it and, and it, it causes ripple effects in their life and they, they pretend that it doesn't even exist, and it just, just stays there. See, edging God out begins with this being comfortable and having this smugness and being proud at where we're at. Uh, we become self-centered or self-satisfied and indifferent. It just, it just, we just, we just it doesn't register with us. We're not listening, standing at the door, knocking. The music's so loud in the party of our life that we don't even hear Jesus. And, and we become indifferent to that. We're, we're happy with ourselves, kind of. So, King, this is Daniel. Take my advice. Make a clean break with your sins and start living for others. Quit your wicked life and look after the needs of the down and out. Then you will continue to have a good life. This idea of sin, the things that are out of aligned with God's preferred will for our lives, the big things, the little things, the things where our character, our actions don't line up with God's best wishes for us. Those are sins. And Daniel says, probably humbly, but he says it, king, oh great king, 
I don't like saying this to you, but your sins, make a break of them, stop that, change that, and start living for others. Don't live for yourself. You have all these resources, this power that is unseen across the globe, this region. Use it for others, not for yourselves. Quit the wicked life. Meet the needs of the down and out. And for us, that includes the life of those that have less than us, but down and out also can mean those who are emotionally down and out. Those who have life seems to be closing in on them. Maybe it's not financial. Maybe it is. We need to have eyes. We need to, to, to see them. Sometimes these kings would orchestrate their life in such a way that if anybody was uh, sad or poor or, you know, whatever, they would, they would not let, let, let the king see them. I don't know if you heard, I think one at uh, the recent uh, royal wedding, uh, the town that it was going to be in, uh, one of the city leaders realized that there were some homeless people along the path of the processional, and they moved to get rid of them so, so that, that they wouldn't even be seen. And there was outcry. There was outcry, and sometimes we, we do that ourselves. We don't, we don't want to see those people. They can even be in the room, but we, we don't see them. Solomon writes, you insult your maker when you exploit the powerless. When you're kind to the poor, you honor God. Financially poor, but I think also poor in spirit. And we insult God, that God has entrusted to us this quote-unquote thing called success. And for some reason, this other person is not experiencing it. So we wear as a badge of honor that we're better than that other person. We're just experiencing some grace that that other person isn't experiencing. Have you ever met a successful person that's never had a bad thing happen? And they have contempt for those around them. I remember I had a friend who was very successful. Everything he touched, he was a pastor's son, and, and God blessed him. Everything he touched, he made into money. It was unbelievable, whatever business venture. And uh, it was maybe the fifth or sixth business venture. All of a sudden, it didn't go well. And up to that point, if you had had a conversation and someone else was struggling, his basic thing was work harder and smarter. And all of a sudden, he discovered you can work harder and smarter, and it doesn't all come together. That changed his life. He realized to, to have an eye for the down and out because he was one for a moment in time. Not a long moment, but a moment in time. And he learned his lesson. So when he talks about making a break for sin, we call that word repentance. Let's talk about that a little bit. Maybe we don't talk about repentance enough. And I've shared this before with you a number of years ago uh, that I think there's two different kinds of repentance. There is uh, decaffeinated repentance and caffeinated repentance. Just like coffee, there's, there's one that smells like coffee, tastes like coffee, is hot like coffee, but it's decaffeinated, it's really not coffee. Then there's another one that smells like coffee, is coffee, and gets your heart racing. The same way with repentance. There's a repentance that smells like it, looks like it, might even taste like it, but the heart doesn't get engaged. And then there is a repentance where the heart is engaged. Let's say it this way. It's in your notes just written out. 
Decaffeinated repentance conveys a change of mind such as to produce regret or even remorse on account of sin, but not necessarily a change of heart. I got caught. I'm living with the consequences. I feel bad. But when it comes to whatever that was, there's no change of heart. There's, 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 there's no... There's nothing more than that. In the old King James, it talks about Judas. You remember Judas? He portrays Jesus. It says, Judas, which had betrayeth him, when he saw that he was condemned, that's himself, repented himself. He actually uses the word repent. We go then, if Judas repented, why didn't he get a fresh new start? It's because that repentance was that decaffeinated kind of repentance. You can feel sorry, you can feel bad, you can feel whatever, and you don't have the caffeinated repentance. Caffeinated repentance, on the other hand, conveys a change of one's mind and purpose in life. So when I have caffeinated repentance, my view of whatever that change is isn't just that I feel sorry for it, but I actually start to look at it differently. Let me be a little transparent here. I've been trying to lose some weight. Can anyone notice a little bit? But uh, I got a long way to go. Last night we went out to dinner with some friends. First time I've had a sandwich with bread and French fries all together. And then, and then we went to an ice cream place. I ordered the kitty cone, I swear I did, and they gave me a, a small, which was like huge. And, and I should have said no, or cut the top off, but I didn't, I ate the whole thing. And um, I got home and I said, my stomach aches in ways that I haven't experienced in a long time. I said that to Cindy. You see, you see, I was repentant, decaffeinated in that moment. I said to Cindy, I need to write it down somewhere. I did not feel good after eating that. that it was a turkey Reuben. All oh, was just. It was just. Oh, this is bad before lunch. But it was crispy butter all over it. Just the right amount of grease and all that stuff. And and the French fries, curly fries. And anyway, anyway. But uh, you know, it was so good going down. But I I didn't feel good afterwards. And I said I've got to remember that. I've got to change my heart change my mind, change my purpose, not a recreational eater, but, uh, you know, change my mind towards it and go, eating all that food I know is not going to make me feel good and also affects my weight loss. Maybe I should have had, well, no, maybe I should have had the uh, Reuben and gotten some broccoli with it instead of French fries. And then when the ice cream came, I should have cut the top off. If, I, if, I'm, if I've really repented, because then I've changed my mind. But you can apply that to a million things, whatever it is. Uh, purity, what you look at on the internet. You feel sorry, you feel guilty, but have you changed your mind to it? I can actually repent without feeling sorry for it because I can change my mind and just change my mind. Do we really change? When was the last time, and if you're not a Christian, Christ follower, or convinced, this is for the convinced. When was the last time you really repented of something? 
Has it been a few years? As Christians, we should be repenting regularly because no one in this room, including me, has arrived. None of us are at complete success spiritually. So if you have not repented of something, you can actually look at it and say, I used to think this way, it took a little while, now I think this way. Something's gone wrong. All of us should be people of continual repentance. We should keep doing it. It should be a way of life. I should be different than I was six months ago. It should keep happening. Keep growing. Keep doing. Now for Nebuchadnezzar, his example of repentance or the demonstration of it was this way, was going to be the fact that he he got rid of those sins, he repented, and he also started caring for those that were helpless because he was in a position to do that. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, ensure justice for those who are perishing. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. So all of us are going to have a different demonstration when we repent of something, when we change of something. There should be an outward expression to some degree. Maybe it means you turn off the TV. I don't know, whatever it is. You don't take the large kitty cone. We're supposed to get a kitty cone. Whatever it is, you change as an expression of that that shows that this repentance was caffeinated. For the king, it was clear what he needed to do. For us, it can be clear, but there needs to be some kind of action, some kind of replacement. When we think about pride and we think about humility, we need to remember that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Probably heard that before. So for Nebuchadnezzar, to think of himself less was for him to think of others and do things for others, take his eyes off himself. And what's amazing is he has this warning and we see that he lives on borrowed time. It's 12 months later when it finally catches up with him. You ever been there? Has God ever spoke to you through his word, through someone else? And you know what you need to do? Nebuchadnezzar was given plain warning he was going to lose it all not even lose the kingdom as in be in charge. He was going to lose his mind. And he doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. Heard me say this before. Educated way beyond our level of obedience. I can guarantee you all of us have something we're putting off. And we're living on borrowed time. Unfortunately, in this story, we see the results of that. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to have these seven periods of craziness. He didn't have to have that happen. Didn't have to have that happen. Some of us are experiencing things in our life that didn't have to happen. God told us. God warned us. God explained it to us. And now we're in the middle of it. What's God saying to you? How is God speaking to you? What is God saying? Soon, if you don't make this course correction, 
Soon, if you don't have a caffeinated repentance, change your mind on this and then have it start to flow through your life. Soon, you're going to get the consequences of that. What is it? What do you need to change? Daniel 4, 31. Even as the words were on his lips, Nebuchadnezzar, I've pulled it all together. I'm on my porch. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Until that happens, until you repent, really repent, you're, you're in trouble. Now, how, how are we doing with the idea of redeeming? We talk about redeeming the time. We sometimes think that's time management. But redeem the opportunities. Redeem what God has given to you. Redeem your life. Because the days are evil. It doesn't mean anything about the days per cent. It means that days are evil because you've got less and less and less and less days. So redeem while you have enough days to redeem. Where you, wherefore, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And for most of us, that's not a mystery. That's not a mystery. Knowing what the will is of the Lord is. And Daniel, we read as he starts to sum this up, he says, Everyone he, everything he does, this is referring to God, is right, and he does it in the right way. He knows how to turn a proud person into a humble man or woman. He knows how to do it, and he will do it. He absolutely will do it. Not to hurt you, not to punish you, but to set you right. But to set you right. Next week, when we pick up and hear a little bit more about King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see that because of all of this, it changes everything for him. It's a good thing that God knew how to humble Nebuchadnezzar. He needed seven periods of time, not six, not five, not three. He needed seven. He didn't need eight, nine, or ten. He needed seven. God knows how to do it. And sometimes we continually resist it and push back on it. So if you're not humble, it's only time before you will stumble. It's only time. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen because if you've said yes to Christ, you have a loving heavenly father that wants to be part of your life. And he wants the best life possible. Not a perfect life, but the best life possible. And he can't work with proud people. He can only work with humble people. And when we're not, it causes all kinds of stumbling in our lives. So how do I say yes to Jesus? Maybe you've heard me say this a lot, but there's three ideas, there's three concepts. It's not a magical formula. There's not a silver bullet, but it starts with this. It starts with admitting, acknowledging you have been out of step with God. We call that sin and need to be connected to God through Christ. 
It means coming to a place like that says, I need God in my life. I need forgiveness in my life. I'm not perfect. And the reality is none of us are. And so I believe, I believe that Jesus gave his life for me. He died. And I accept his forgiveness of my sins. And I repent. Not repent decaffeinately. I repent caffeinatedly. I repent. Doesn't mean you got to get it perfect, but there's a change of heart. And that change of heart shows that I choose to invite Christ into my life as the one I'm going to try to follow. I'm going to mess it up every once in a while, but that's the road I'm on. Not on a different road. I'm on the road to trying to follow Christ. And that starts us on the process of a relationship with God. And then we can start dealing with success. Then we can start dealing with not being trapped. Then we can deal with not just surviving, but thriving. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the story of Daniel. We thank you that he had the guts to uh, stand up to Nebuchadnezzar in a respectful way, but in a right way. And uh, some of us, that would have been all over. I, I, I don't know if I could have done that, but he does that. And uh, we thank you that you include the story of Nebuchadnezzar's response. Help us to learn from it without having to actually experience it firsthand. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.